Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. So glad you're back doing this. This is fun. This is fun. And I, I'll be honest, I've missed you. I missed you yeah. too. Let's, you're going to have to yeah. say that on, uh, on audio. Yeah, yeah, we're recording, so... <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability with the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Manuela Toyas with CalMatters. And today, July 6th, 2021, we're talking about the state's new, but also the state's old, eviction protections that were first passed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic last spring. After weeks of tense negotiations, the state voted last week to extend tenant protections for another three months as part of the budget process. So we'll be talking about what the state did, but especially since we chatted about this on the last episode, we'll be talking a little bit more about what's happened with evictions and rent relief efforts since the beginning of the pandemic. And also we'll be chatting about what comes next when these new slash old eviction protections now end at the end of September. And to round all of this up, we have the perfect guest. Manuela, who is it? We're excited to welcome David Chu. He's a Democrat from San Francisco who chairs the Assembly Housing Committee and he helped craft each of these eviction protections. A multiple-time podcast guest who might even have the record. I'm trying to think of how many times he's been on, but he's at or near friend of the pod status at this point. But before we jump into all of this, we have the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the... Avocado of the Fortnite. It is our look at the most absurd story in California housing over the past few weeks. And for this fortnight, we're going to go back in history or actually prehistory. So Manuela, where does this avocado take us? To the wealthy Bay Area city of Hillsborough at the end of a long-running legal dispute. Long-time listeners of Gimme Shelter may remember that we featured this incident as an avocado of the fortnight years ago, and it's certainly worthy of a return. We are talking about Hillsborough homeowner Florence Fang who turned her $3 million home into a playground of statues from the Flintstones. It is known as the Flintstone House. There's Fred, there's Wilma, dinosaurs, cartoonish signs. You can see all of this from the Interstate 280 Highway when you're driving by. Back in 2019, Hillsborough sued Fang for creating a public nuisance with her statues, alleging she needed permits for her work and all sorts of other things. Fang sued back, and last month, she settled with the city, gets to keep her statues, and the city ended up having to pay her $125,000, which is a pretty nice chunk of change. You can certainly add more Flintstone character statues to your menagerie, if you will. So Fang's lawyer, former San Francisco supervisor Angela Alito, in the wake of the settlement, said, quote, Fred and Wilma will stay in their home. And this was quoted in an article by Danielle Echeverria and Chase D. Felicitano of the San Francisco Chronicle. So Manuela, what do you think? A good or bad result here? I mean, this is good news personally for me because it means that I'll have a place to take my family whenever they finally come visit me. Are you a Flintstones fan or did you watch Flintstones growing up? I used to when I was little, but I wanted to come up with some sort of joke about which character they should add in a couldn't. So I guess that says how big of a fan I am. I do like to imagine how fun it would have been to slide down a dinosaur and then like be done. That just seems like the best way to say no more work for me today. Just going to slide down this dinosaur and everything will be good. 
So big thanks to listener Ryan Lester. Uh, Send us a great email for this avocado suggestion. It was on our radar, but this cemented it. And also I want to give a quick nod to redistricting pro Evan McLaughlin, who, when I first tweeted about this legal settlement situation, called it a victory for yabba dabba due process. <laughs> so let's move on to our main topic of the day, evictions, or I guess lack thereof. So Manuela, you explained what the state lawmakers did last week in extending eviction protections, but also you had this great story that you folks wrote, you and some colleagues, where you examined evictions that had been taking place or have been taking place around the state during the pandemic as well. Just before we get to kind of what you found Can you give us a brief rundown? And again, I know we talked about this the last episode, but what evictions protections are here now and also what money is available for folks who are in need of rental assistance? As of last week, tenants can't be evicted from their homes over missed rent payments until September 30th, as long as they submit a declaration that they were affected by COVID and they pay a quarter of the rent due by that time, September 30th. Protections were supposed to end June 30th, and what lawmakers did and the governor signed was now that's going to end September 30th. Exactly. And there's also a sort of six-month bonus through March 2022 that extends a 15-day period once a landlord files an eviction against you to allow you to apply to the state's rental assistance program. So a little bit of a leeway that's extended for six more months after the September 30th deadline. And what else? There's a couple other protections, too, that were part of the last few rounds. Basically, a landlord can't evict over renovation unless they're doing that remodel over a health and safety threat like black mold. And a big part of this, which was part of the negotiations, is the amount of money available for rental assistance. So the state now has $5.2 billion before it was 2.6. That's with a B. Significant chunk of change. Significant that now tenants and their landlords, previously only landlords could apply to the bulk of this, to cover 100% of missed rent. And in order to qualify for that, it all depends on the tenant, and they have to make less than 80% of the area median income and have lost income due to COVID. Okay, so 80% of area median income, like what does that actually mean? Can you give us some examples of, say, like what a family of four would need to make to qualify? So, for example, a family of four in Fresno County would be making $70,700 or less. In Sacramento, $86,000. And in San Francisco, that is $143,000. Now, in certain localities like L.A., they're prioritizing people with 50% area median income, because of these changes in the rules, there is going to be more money available where if a county doesn't max out their allotted rental assistance, that'll be able to go to places that need it more, like the big cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles. So that is sort of still up in the air. Oh, I see. So if a certain county gets a number allocated, but then all the money is not used up, then if there's more demand in, say, bigger cities or wherever else, then that money could then flow to those areas. Right. And in Los Angeles, for example, county, 80% median income would be 77000 for a family of four. So someone making above that isn't going to qualify for this assistance. And even if their landlord needs that money, if their tenant doesn't qualify, 
that's no good. And again, like the whole reason these protections came into place and this money became available was this big concern. I think it certainly still exists about the sort of wave of evictions that we may see or may have seen from the fact that at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly lower income workers, as things have played out, those unable to work from home, lost jobs and lost income at a rapid, rapid, rapid rate. And so there was this big fear economically that folks would no longer be able to pay their rent. And then also, I think particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, and certainly before vaccinations were widespread, that putting people out in the street would actually also help potentially fuel the spread of the virus as well. So these protections are put into place both for economic reasons, but also public health reasons. Exactly. So explain to me then what you found about how there are evictions that have been happening, even though they're supposedly, you reuse the phrase eviction protections, but a lot of the people in charge, the Governor Newsom and mayors and others and lawmakers have been referring to this as an eviction moratorium. So help us understand like how there are actually evictions that are happening despite these protections. So the reason that a lot of advocates and even some lawmakers focused on this issue have avoided the term moratorium is because This isn't a blanket ban on evictions. It's protections against a very certain type of eviction, which is non-payment of rent. But other types of evictions have continued to happen. And so what we found at CalMatters by requesting sheriff lockout information was that at least 10,000 households were locked out of their homes by sheriff's departments, part of the sort of the last step in the eviction process. Right. You get sued and then there's a court order and then the sheriffs are the ones who execute that court order. Precisely. So it's also a limited sphere of data because there are lots of tenants that leave their homes way before that process, sometimes before it even enters court. But this is sort of the most conservative estimate that we could come up with. And we verified that these addresses were residential and that the lockouts were indeed carried out as opposed to canceled. But if we had included some of those counties that didn't give us complete data, that didn't give us addresses, for example, to make sure that they were residential, the number could be about 2,000 households higher and even higher for counties that just didn't provide any data at all, like Fresno County, actually. So what did you find? What was the number? So across the state since March 2020, at least 10,000 households were locked out by sheriff's departments. And that is data through March of 2021. Another interesting finding is that those evictions actually ramped up as time went on. We found nearly as many, and in some counties, even more evictions between January and March, 2021, just in those Mm -hmm. three months, Mm -hmm. than in the whole second half of 2020 between July and December. And that can be interpreted differently. But what experts told us was there was a huge backlog of evictions. Courts were closed for some time. The process was very complicated during the pandemic. So it's very hard to say people were evicting more. This really just shows what was happening on the court side and how that was trickling down to the sheriff's departments. But we did see overall an increase as time has gone on. 
So while those numbers are extremely low compared to what a normal year is, and we had found this too, and we had done some work looking at eviction filings in LA back in the winter, only a fraction of what what a normal year eviction process is, but still a pretty healthy number considering that we have this sort of general, or supposed to be a pretty broad-based set of protections against this from happening at all. Correct. As I'm sure you found, it's hard to really be able to compare this because we don't really have this exact set of data for a normal year, but estimates go from 66,000 to a hundred and something thousand a year. So this is a smaller fraction of that. And the Apartments Association, for example, told me they were surprised at how low this number was because there are over 6 million rental units across the state. And this represents a small fraction of that. But you're right. With the language that we've been hearing from lawmakers, this does sound kind of like a shock. So many households being evicted amid a pandemic. So what are some of the reasons that were given for why these evictions occurred? We couldn't track that through the data. So we Uh can only assume from what landlord and tenant groups have told us, but people could still be evicted, for example, for broken leases. In one instance, a woman filed a unlawful detainer, basically an eviction against her because her dog was too big for the lease. So that's an example that a legal aid organization brought up in Fresno and that eviction didn't actually go through because they stopped it from happening, speaking to the landlord, showing these are the text messages and we can see that this could be retaliation for missed rent. But there's a lot of people, especially in the Central Valley where this occurred, that don't have access to legal aid. And that yeah. could have been a reason Technically, under the law, if you broke your lease, you could have been evicted. Some other reasons include nuisances. So if you are making too much noise, being a very rowdy neighbor, some advocacy organizations brought up kids who were staying home and making way more noise than the neighbors were accustomed to and bringing that up. There was criminal activity. A meth lab, for example, I think was was one of the cases brought up, can be evicted for this. And a landlord who demolished or remodeled, as he said before, only over health and safety concerns or taking the unit off the rental market to sell it to an owner move-in. Or Mm. if a parent was wanting to have their adult child move into the place and take it off the rental market that way. So another thing I thought was really interesting about what you folks reported is just the vast disparities across the state. The protections, you know, the state level ones at least were uniform, but how this actually played itself out in different areas across the state was very different. What did you find in that respect? On average, we found that every 10,000 households, about six were evicted statewide using this data. And that number really jumped in Central Valley counties. Mm. For example, in Stanislaus, it was 18. And by contrast, San Francisco had less than one household every 10,000. Yeah, huge, huge disparity depending on where you were. LA, for example, had over a third of the evictions. And what we found was that while the state had uniform protections for everybody, local counties and cities could 
add additional protections on top of the state ones. Mm. So that's pretty much what we found caused a huge disparity in the Central Valley counties that I looked at. There weren't really many eviction protections on top of what the state laid out. And that's exactly what you saw happening in the Bay Area. You had additional moratoriums with much stricter protections for tenants. Passed by the cities or the local jurisdictions, Exactly. And then you also had sheriff's departments who said, we will only evict over certain types of evictions. For example, really strict health and safety violations. So while that was part of the state law, it depended on the court catching that. And then the sheriff basically just did whatever the court said in these Central Valley counties. Whereas in San Francisco, something could have gone through the court, but stopped at the sheriff's level. So you had all these extra layers on top of the state protections that we believe gave way to some of these disparities. Maybe you can explain a little bit more about this. The new state rules have a limit on and prevent localities from passing new eviction protections sort of going forward beyond what the state did. Is that is that right? So this one also is a complicated answer because they do prevent localities from enacting stronger protections against non-payment of rent. For example, in Los Angeles County, they passed a moratorium extension that said that an elderly tenant can't be evicted unless the person moving into the home is also elderly. So that's not over non-payment of rent. That's over an owner move-in. So local jurisdictions, as I understand the law, can still enact these types of protections that aren't over non-payment of rent, but they can't add all these other layers on top of the non-payment of rent category evictions. So it gets a little complicated, but those jurisdictions that had already put protections in place over that can keep them. Again, just to add another layer of complication here, some localities, some cities and counties passed eviction protections prior to the state acting at all in the first place. So I know from LA City, they have their own city-specific protections, and those may not expire at the end of September when the state's does, right? So LA City's rules says the eviction protections that are here, they continue until the mayor declares the end of the COVID-19 related state of emergency. So we don't know when that'll be. It could be, I guess, before September, it could be afterwards, but renters in LA, even when the state's protections are scheduled to end at the end of September, should still have some potential local protections as it relates to non-payment. So we're just adding the ladder of complicated here, complicated web of protections. And then let's add another layer here with the rent relief dollars. So you referenced there's over $5 billion available for low-income tenants and their landlords to pay off old rental debt, but there's been a ton of problems with actually getting that money out the door. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but can you explain that and then kind of where those numbers are today? It has been a very slow rollout. So the 2.6 billion, the original pot of money from the federal government, have been available since January. And as of June 30th, about 6,600 households received $73 million in assistance. So that's wow. a tiny fraction of what is available. 
at the state level, and then you had local jurisdictions who came up with their own rules for getting the money out. And some of those, like San Francisco, only put together their eligibility and application process and all of that a couple weeks ago. So it's been really, really difficult for people to actually get their hands on the assistance that's available to them. So it's hard to talk about these protections, which are so closely linked to these dollars, when the dollars still seem so intangible to the majority of Californians who need them. What are they trying to do to get the money out faster? And how's that working? The main way was this simplification of the rental assistance application process. So the state says that they've made it a lot shorter, a lot easier, a lot less document heavy and available in many more languages. And so far they say they've had a positive reaction to that, meaning more applications are coming through. The other part that made this really complicated is that before landlords could apply for 80% of missed rent. So just trying to make that calculation and how much was already paid, how much they could apply for, that's pretty hard to do for every single landlord. So what changed now is that they're eligible for a whole 100%. And the state says that's also going to make it easier to get the money out. The other part is that tenants who didn't get their landlord buy-in to get these dollars could only apply for 25% of their missed rent. Now they can apply for the full 100%. So all of this streamlining is what lawmakers are hoping is going to make all of this a lot easier. So we really got into the weeds there, which I think is obviously necessary. But let's just try to zoom out a little bit here and try to explain what this is. So all these things we just talked about with respect to the rental assistance money, we're leaving out people who facing a rental debt decided to pay it off and move out and then, you know, overcrowding, move in with other people because they were afraid for a variety of reasons, owing a debt and living without paying their rent. And now since they do not technically owe a rental debt to someone, they're ineligible for these rent relief dollars, even though they clearly need rental assistance because they were priced out of their home for losing their job or losing their income or whatever, right? We're also leaving out folks who may have borrowed money from their friends and family. It's not like you can apply for rent relief and then pay back your mom or your best friend. It has to be to a landlord. That's a huge host of people. We're also leaving out people who may not have sort of formal leases. If you don't have a formal lease, very, very hard to show that you prove that you may qualify for this money as well. So we're kind of leaving out a huge category of people, first of all. And then second of all, now I'm just going to try to walk through how I was supposed to be protected and then paid if I were a low-income tenant according to all of these rules, okay? So at the beginning, theoretically, I could have not paid any rent at all for a few months, and then I would have needed to pay 25% of my rent, and then I would have needed at all times to send a letter to my landlord every month declaring my inability to pay my rent. Then my landlord still could have tried to evict me And then I would have had to go to court to prove I couldn't pay. Then I would have had to apply for rental assistance, but most likely because of the slowdown and getting the money out, would not have gotten any money yet, even if I qualified. Or maybe I would have gotten 80% if the landlord agreed to take a haircut. But now maybe I would get 100%. Did I describe all that right? I mean, is that kind of how this would have worked in theory? Pretty much. I mean, it's really hard to understand exactly 
what circumstances you're covered under, where you aren't. And depending on where you live, as we found for the Central Valley, it can be really hard to actually access somebody who can explain this to you and defend you in court. Another side of this that I think has been really frustrating to landlords to qualify for protection, tenants have had to submit this paperwork saying they were affected by COVID. But it becomes a lot harder to actually qualify for aid because that's when you need to hit all of the The bullet points of Mm -hmm. income restrictions, documentation that you were affected by COVID. So I can see this law really getting complicated when it actually gets down to the daily life for the people that need it most. And again, to be fair, let's take into account that there was no property tax waiver for landlords during this time. You still have to do maintenance on the property. That's still going to happen. And you could, in theory, I guess, in a situation where you're missing, I guess, up to 15 months of rent at this point, and it's hard to shoulder, even if you got foreclosure protection, it's still pretty hard debt to imagine shouldering that amount of no rent for that amount of time. And then let alone the frustration of if your tenant qualifying for the rental assistance, it taking forever for that money to get back to them and back to you. Definitely a lot to sift through here for tenants and landlords. So given the sort of sturm and drung here about and the time it took to deal with the extension from June to end of September for eviction protections, this seems to me like it's probably the last extension they're going to do. Was there any appetite or was there any talk about going any further than that? Or was this sort of people giving signals this was going to be it? I think that there is the hope on behalf of lawmakers that this is going to be it. That's sort of why they put in place this six-month additional time period where a tenant could still apply for rental assistance after facing an eviction. But looking at the past three extensions, we really don't know. And with how long it's taken for this aid to get out, it's really still up in the air. But I guess even practically, the legislature's not even going to be in session at the end of September when exactly. the rules expire. So there's not even going to be there to pass a bill, even if they wanted to. That's a great point. And I think that that will be a great question to bring up with our guest. Right. So why don't we just talk to Assemblyman Chu? So we're here with Assemblyman David Chu, a Democrat who represents a big portion of San Francisco. David, thank you so much for coming back with us. I think this is your third time on the podcast. Is that right? You tell me, but hey, it's great to be back. I'm glad you're back on it and happy to have your conversation. Here for the trifecta. You're one of the most frequent guests, and so we're happy to have you back. Hopefully third time's a charm. So yeah, we're going to be talking about eviction protections We just published a story on this in CalMatters last week. And in our analysis of sheriff lockouts, we found that at least 10,000 households were displaced from March of last year to March of 2021. Assemblymember, you've been working on this issue for the past year. I'm wondering, what did you make of these findings of the evictions that have been occurring throughout the pandemic? Well, let me just first say that I really appreciate this story. I think it's one of the more significant stories about what's happening to tenants during this time of pandemic. It covers something that many of us had suspected for quite some time, which is there has been this perception that somehow evictions had been completely halted in California, but we've all known 
anecdotally that that has not been the case. But what we didn't know was the data because the state hasn't tracked it. And CalMatters and those of you that were reporting on this, you really were able to dig into the numbers to show what we had all suspected, but is nonetheless, frankly, really disturbing. I was not surprised at what I read, but I personally felt very strongly that we should not have been evicting anyone during this pandemic and recession, and yet thousands of folks have fallen through the cracks. And we found some of the lowest numbers of evictions in your district, the Bay Area. Can you explain why some tenants living in the rest of the state didn't get the same protections as someone, for example, in San Francisco? You know, that was one of the most interesting and disturbing elements of your story. The fact that I'm fortunate to represent the city of San Francisco in a Bay Area that has not seen significant eviction numbers when other parts of the state, for example, the Central Valley have. And I think it's a function of a number of things. In my city and in other parts of the Bay, we've been able to enact significant local protections. And we also have a network of not just tenant advocates, but tenant attorneys who are able to assist individuals who are being served with eviction notices. And that makes a tremendous difference during this process. And I don't think you have that same critical mass of tenant advocates, of tenant attorneys, as well as local jurisdictions that have been able to pass local ordinances to support tenants who might be evicted for grounds that are not protected under the state laws that we've moved forward this past year. To get a little more specific, you're talking about the local ordinances and then we're talking about these state protections. Could you point maybe to a couple of examples of things that might be permitted under state law, but that aren't permitted locally that could have led to some of the disparities in the numbers that we reported? It had been my hope in the early months of the pandemic and the recession that we could have halted all evictions and have what I would have referred to as a true eviction moratorium. But eviction laws are always incredibly difficult to get done in Sacramento. And what we were able to get political consensus for was to halt evictions related to tenants who are suffering economic hardships due to COVID. So in other words, the fact that we had instituted shelter-in-place orders, stay-at-home orders, which prevented people from going to work, which caused people to lose their jobs and lose substantial income, which then had impacts on their ability to pay rent. There have been in place eviction protections for that instance, what I'll refer to as evictions related to COVID economic hardship. But all other evictions were permitted to restart last fall. And we're talking about everything from owner movement evictions to evictions related to the demolition of buildings to evictions related to behavior by tenants if crimes are being committed or nuisance laws are being violated. We had a very significant discussion late last year in the legislature about whether those should be halted. And unfortunately, we did not have support to move forward statewide protections in that area. But what we did allow was for local jurisdictions to legislate if the state was not going to. And so what happened was there were local jurisdictions like mine, San Francisco, urban areas with greater tenant numbers that were able to enact local protections. But in other parts of the state, because of either politics or or lack of political representation, those local protections weren't put in place. So what we've seen now, six, nine months later, is literally the impact of what we knew was going to happen, which is thousands of tenants being evicted for a variety of eviction grounds. 
So another kind of part of this whole conversation has been the significant over $5 billion that the federal government has provided the state to in rental assistance, you know, a number that I think at any time, I'm sure getting $5 billion in tenant assistance from the federal government would have been a pipe dream. But actually spending it and getting it in the hands of the folks who needed it has been extremely slow, all sorts of problems. Why do you think the state can't get this money out? You know, to your point, I don't think any of us expected at the end of last year that we would have $5.2 billion to be able to support struggling tenants and landlords who had been impacted during this pandemic and recession. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening, if you have rental debt, you should go to housingiskey.com and assuming you qualify, you should apply today for that money because it is literally just sitting there waiting to help hundreds of thousands of tenants and landlords at this moment. With regards to why it's taken time to get this money out, there's been a lot of finger pointing, but what I will say is the answer is complicated. So I'll just mention probably four or five different factors. First, this is an entirely new program. New programs just always take time. The program was not launched in the state until the latter part of March. It was not launched in many local jurisdictions until literally the last month or two. And so it's a new program. It involves a lot of complicated and changing and evolving federal, state, and local requirements. And that's important because even as the first federal funding was authorized earlier this year, the Biden administration changed what the Trump administration had been considering, and that created a whole slew of complications. And then the Biden administration realized that it was slow to get money out, and they changed their own rules. So that has happened in recent months. And then you add the fact that we had to pass a law at the state level that required agencies to figure out how to do it. And then there were dozens of local jurisdictions that have propped up their own programs related to this. So that's been complicated. Then you add the challenges of how you educate millions of tenants and landlords, particularly when there are language barriers and digital divide barriers. Because for months, you had to have access to the internet with a laptop or a computer. It was not mobile access until literally a couple of weeks ago. And then you add on top of that, that the initial application for this money was really complicated. And there were a lot of documentation requirements that were put in place to address fraud, understandably. But those requirements made it really difficult. It literally took hours for folks to apply. It took a lot of paperwork. So that has all been streamlined literally in recent weeks. So hopefully it's going to be faster. But you add all this stuff up, new program, complicated federal, state, and local requirements, challenges educating folks, language access, digital divide, complicated application and documentation requirements. It has taken way too long for us to get this money out. Let's assume everything is streamlined and fixed and submit your application in a half hour or less and the language barriers are no longer a problem, all sorts of things. Just look at some of these numbers here. We have less than $100 million out the door, gotten to people there's over $5 billion left to be spent. These eviction protections, new ones that we're talking about, they expire at the end of September. Is it at all realistic to expect that all the rental money is going to be out by the time these protections expire? I think, Liam, you just said about $100 million is paid out. There's probably seven, eight times as much money. So my understanding, at least, I want to say seven, $800 million that has already been applied for. I'll rephrase my question and say, do you think we're going to get another $4 billion out in three months? So that's the imperative. We just voted last week to extend the current eviction protections to the end of September. But what we also voted on was a six-month period from 
the end of September through the beginning of April, where if a tenant has experienced COVID economic hardship and they're facing an eviction, they can apply for the money during that time period, and that would pause an eviction action. So it doesn't halt an eviction, but it slows down the process while someone is applying for the money and hopefully gets that money and is able to pay back their landlord. So the next three months is critical, but we don't have to spend all of the money in the next three months. The other thing I'll say, though, is it is really important that this money get out quickly for two reasons. One, the feds can literally claw this money back. So if jurisdictions do not spend the money, the federal requirements allow for unspent money to go back to federal coffers. And then on top of that, for those jurisdictions and states that do spend money quickly where there is need, we could actually get another tranche of federal money. So we've got a real reason to not just lose money, to also hopefully qualify for more money if we're able to spend this expeditiously for those struggling tenants and landlords. So I want to ask about some people who like don't qualify for this money, people who may have moved out once they realized they weren't going to be able to pay rent and then ended up living in overcrowded situations, those who may not have formal leases, those who paid their rent by borrowing money from friends or family or payday loans. None of those folks qualify for any of this money, right? So like, what should they do? So at the moment, I want to appreciate our United States senators, Padilla and Feinstein, who have joined other U.S. legislators to push the federal conversation to allow for some of this rent relief money to go to those very individuals. Because we know that there are countless tenants out there who literally sacrificed food and health care and other things and went into deep credit card debt in order to pay the rent or, to your point, moved or lived on couches and for a variety of different reasons are not eligible for this funding. And basically, there is a federal conversation going on on how that money can assist those individuals. I will also say for landlords who have been concerned and have been complaining about tenants who just up and left their apartment, fled the state because of the situation, they can actually apply for some of this assistance as we speak. So there are provisions that allow for back rent to be paid as long as those landlords can show that someone was living in their apartment for a time period and wasn't able to pay. Manuel and I went over during our sort of portion of this podcast, some of the eviction protection rules. We talked a lot about them here already. Things like people needing to write letters every month to tell their landlord they can't pay. Then it's, you have to pay 25% of your rent for some months, but none for others. You're actually not all protected just by writing that letter. You only have technically a defense in court. These sorts of things have been going on now for essentially 15 months with little to no rent paid. And then adding to it, just what you mentioned about, you know, digital divide, internet access, and language issues. How is this even at all a practical system for both landlords and low-income tenants to navigate not only to keep people in their houses, but get the assistance that they're otherwise due? Well, I will mention that there has been one major simplifying of the program based on a law that we passed last week. So five months ago is when we first learned that we were going to have money to put out to folks on this. And because we didn't know if we could stretch all the dollars, there was a complicated payment system that was set up. And I refer to it as the 80-20-25% system. What I mean by that is a landlord had to agree to forgive 20% of rental debt in order for the remaining 80% to be received as financial assistance 
to that tenant to pay that landlord. And if that did not happen, then a tenant would only receive financial assistance for 25%. Yes, it was complicated. I believe that complicated structure has made it difficult for people to apply or to want to apply. And in fact, five months ago, I was arguing for a much simpler system, which is just to pay 100%, to not require landlords on the one hand to have to forgive debt, but on the other hand, to make sure that tenants receive 100% of financial assistance to cover what they owe. And that's what we ended up doing a week ago with the new three-month extension. So anyone can apply. We don't ask for any discussion or negotiation between landlords and tenants, which is what was the case for the previous five months. And we simply say, hey, if the tenant qualifies from a financial standpoint, which means they make less than an 80% of the area meeting income, then they would receive 100% of rental assistance for any rent debt to be paid to the landlord. I know that was a lot of numbers. Yeah, so that was a question about how complicated the system was. So thanks for, for the insight, but also for helping to validate that point too. By the way, I should say if folks had applied and either a landlord had forgiven 20% of rental debt or a tenant had only received 25% of rental assistance, you can apply to get all that money that you had thought you had foregone. So we're just trying to true up everybody so that 100% of rental debt is taken care of. You discussed sort of the backstops for a tenant who who might get the eviction notice, but still has those extra six months to still apply for rental assistance. But what's going to happen come September? What are you expecting given the challenge of getting the dollars out? And what, in your opinion, should trigger a conversation around another extension of these protections? Let me make one clarification, which is during that six-month period, depends on money still being available. So if we run out of money, then all bets are off. So under the law that we just passed last week, come September 30th, all evictions can restart. But what happens is if you happen to be a tenant who has experienced COVID hardship and you had not applied for money, your eviction can be halted as long as there's money in the pot and you qualify. I, though, anticipate that after September 30th, we will see a significant increase in the number of evictions. Now, hopefully by that time, a lot of folks have gotten money so that they're no longer in rental debt, but we just don't know. And the good thing about the last 15 months is between the initial courts deciding to halt evictions for the first five plus months of last year to three extensions of eviction protections, we have been able to avoid a wave of massive evictions. If any of these had not passed, I believe that we would have seen really a a tremendous eviction cliff. And we've been able to avert that. But what I don't know is what happens on September 30th, whether there will be all these pent up eviction notices ready to go. And, you know, when I mentioned that there is this backstop, if you're a tenant and you're eligible for funding, you didn't apply for it, technically you would have a defense as long as you submitted your application. But that depends on you knowing of those rights. It typically depends on you being able to access an attorney. If you aren't aware of these rights, you could literally, what we refer to as self-evict, you could think that you don't have rights and just leave 
And so that's a very real possibility. And frankly, we've already heard of that happening even during this time period from folks because they get an eviction notice and maybe it could be about evictions not related to COVID economic hardship. And they get it, they think, oh, I'm done. And they move out of the house, they're homeless, they're moving to their friend's couch. So I guess just around that September date, what could happen in terms of the legislature's own actions? Is there a plan to reconvene on this issue or was this law passed last week sort of the last go at preventing more evictions from happening? There really hasn't been a discussion on that yet. If it had been up to me, I thought we should have extended these eviction protections at least until the end of the year. September 30th was a highly negotiated compromise between the two sides on this issue. I think we are all going to have an eye on the data of how many people have applied for money, what that demand looks like, how many folks have rental debt. And I suspect come August, we'll be thinking hard about whether there's more that we need to do. So it's hard to say at this point, and as was the case at the end of August when we were facing an eviction cliff, and then at the end of January and at the end of June, these discussions have gone right up to the wire, literally hours before deadlines, and as we're trying to figure out what to do with this. And you mentioned sort of the discussion around tenants who may not have qualified. What would you say, I guess, to landlords who haven't been able to evict people because of these protections, but then when those tenants go to apply for aid, they don't qualify? Perhaps they're above 80% area median income or some other reason that they don't qualify. What have those discussions looked like? I am sympathetic, not just to the plight of struggling tenants, but also the plight of struggling landlords. And I'll mention a few things. The data that we have seen suggests strongly that the vast majority of folks who have not paid rent qualify for financial assistance. So this idea that somehow there's this huge category of tenants who are making a lot of money, who are just choosing not to pay, that may be true anecdotally, but I don't think that is borne out in the overall data. But that being said, you know, at this moment, if you're not paying your rent, you've got to attest under penalty of perjury that you've suffered an economic hardship during this time period. And so if you knowingly lie in signing that, you can be prosecuted for fraud. And then for those individuals who did suffer an economic hardship but don't qualify for financial assistance, they will continue to owe 100% of missed rent. And under the laws that actually we've just voted on that are part of these eviction protections, we've actually made it easier and cheaper for landlords to sue tenants to recover missed rent. They can go to small claims court, regardless of how much money is owed or the number of claims, which right now there used to be more restrictions on that. And those landlords can sue their tenants to collect that money. And once the landlord gets a judgment for that unpaid rent, they can garnish the wages of their tenants. They can have funds withdrawn from bank accounts. So there are definitely avenues for landlords to get the money that they're due from folks who can afford to pay it. And if you can't afford to pay it as a tenant, you should be applying for that money. So we've really tried to think through kind of what are the possibilities of what could be happening. And for those tenants who can pay, you really should be paying because if you don't qualify for money, either attested under penalty of perjury and you're lying, or you can be quickly sued and you're going to owe that money. It's going to be a judgment against you for until you pay it. David, appreciate your optimism, I suppose, about the state being able to spend this 
uh, Reynolds' money is that it has not only quickly enough to wind down the $5 billion that is already in the account, but perhaps so much that the other states who can't do it will be handing their money over to California for the need that's here. Are you worried, though, given kind of how much behind the eight ball the state is and the slow pace of spending now, that the state is going to have to give some of that money back? I am hopeful that things have been better streamlined, that the requirements have been simplified, the application has been simplified. But like any of us, we just don't know if we're going to be able to get all this money out. So I'd like to be optimistic. And these are numbers that we're going to be monitoring on a weekly basis to just see the pace at which struggling Californians are taking advantage of a well-funded program. And just to put a finer point on that, and this, even before the pandemic, the amount of pain that the housing affordability, states housing affordability programs were having, particularly on low-income renters. And how much of a, tra- I don't know, this is maybe more of a statement than a question, but what a tragedy it would be if the state had $5 billion to help folks who were already in trouble prior to all this, and then it just simply couldn't do it. I can't agree with you more. In fact, I've said on many occasions that it would be unbelievably tragic to evict families onto the streets when we have the ability to keep them in their homes with rent relief funding. And my concern is if eviction protections end in a couple of months and we're sitting in on this money, we haven't gotten it out to folks and people get evicted, it would be like fumbling on the one yard line. It would be tragic of epic proportions. And I guess just one last forward looking question on the legislative calendar, as I see it, by the time that these protections expire, there will be a recess. So You talked about August earlier. Do you think that that would be when this all gets revisited? How would you work around that September deadline if the legislature is not in session? I was pushing a lot of our colleagues and many discussions with leadership for many weeks leading up to June 30th. And uh, I will and others will certainly be focused on this in August and early September to make sure that if things are going very poorly, that we may have to reconsider whether an extension is necessary or whether other protections are necessary. But that's not uh, that's not all your choice. There are other folks who uh, would have to agree with you to extend things even further. I am one of 120 legislators. We are part of a legislative branch that has to work things out with our governor and the executive branch. So you are entirely correct. Uh, it's not just up to one person. David, anything else you want to make sure that our you know very vast and influential podcast audience knows or is aware of? Another thing I've been just saying a lot of is while we see the light at the end of the tunnel, Despite vaccinations and the economy reopening, so many Californians are still in precarious financial situations. Tenants who were struggling with rent before the pandemic bore the huge brunt of unprecedented job losses, took on huge amounts of debt, and many are still hanging on by a thread. The numbers are very significant. This past month, there were 1.75 million California rental households that reported to the census slight or no confidence in their ability to pay next month's rent. There was a recent policy link analysis that estimates over 900,000 households that are behind on rent. And so it's just so important that folks in these situations educate themselves on this program, apply for this funding, And in the worst case scenario, where after September 30th, someone gets a three-day notice or some message telling you, you've got to leave your home, do not just pack up and leave. You have rights. Look into those rights. Apply for rent relief. If you can, find a lawyer. Know that many of us who are policymakers are doing everything we can to keep folks stably housed. All right. David, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like what we're offering in this new and improved version, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and your other favorite podcast services. This rate and reviewing is important so that it helps new people discover us when they search. Big thank you, as always, to our fantastic editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. I am Liam with the Los Angeles Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias with Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. So I'm going to be going on vacation. I know, I know we left you for so long and we're advertising going away again, uh, but it'll only be a little bit longer than a fortnight and we'll be uh, back soon. Looking forward to it.